0: savor together just the beauty of what we just got to witness in Ashley's testimony. Um, It's, uh, in in many ways, I believe some of the the first fruit of uh, this this revitalization work that we hope to see God do uh, in our church, where someone who uh, was far from God has been drawn near through participating in our faith family, through connecting groups, and and Sunday mornings, and all that kind of thing, and and so uh, it's it's fun to celebrate with Ashley and just the redemption that God has worked in her life. And it's also fun to dream, uh, having this evidence, dream of uh, other other Ashleys and uh, you know, any name out there, other people out there who are currently in a similar place, uh, in, in a place of darkness, in a place of uh, un- dissatisfaction, not being able to to fill the hole in their hearts and. Uh, angry at God and so uh, join me in uh, rejoicing with Ashley and and also praying that we'd see lots lots more uh, uh, of these fruits as we as we move forward the good news of the gospel go forth well we talked uh at our member meeting and uh I'm going to say this until you guys are sick of it, that the phrase that we want to gather around as a church family is we want to follow Jesus together. We're in a season of revitalization uh, as a church family, and we want to follow Jesus together. What does it mean? Turn back to the roots of who is Jesus? What did he say? What did he do? How do we follow him? And I think one of the, the biggest breakdowns that uh, that we have in our lives that, that works against us, especially if you have any church background, is that... Church, I think, in our culture, has largely been kind of reduced to a, a thing in the brain, a thing that you know, where a, a set a set of facts that you agree to, kind of more, almost more like a bachelor's degree. You know, where you you come and you hear a lecture, and you might go to a study, and you and you gain facts, and all that is not is good, is necessary, and something we'll always have here. Uh, but we see in Scripture that. Uh, following Jesus is, is a lot more like learning to become an electrician. Like, if you wanted to be an electrician, there might be a little bit of classwork, but largely you would just go find an electrician and then do what he did. Uh, it's this kind of all-of-life thing, and, which is why we're talking about emotions, which is why we're talking about prayer and looking at, at, at Scripture. Uh, Tim Keller's book that we handed out is called The Songs of Jesus. The Psalms are the book that Jesus quotes the most. It's what he quotes on the cross. Uh, he he probably would have had a lot of them memorized, and so we we join Jesus in embracing the Psalms, which show us how to pray, show us how to emote, and we always want to uh, offer uh, invitations to you to to embody what we're talking about in our sermons. And so, in the back page, last page of your bulletin is a is a little resource list, and I added one, uh, but it's really an old resource; it's not actually new. Which is our family prayer time, which meets at nine thirty on Sunday mornings, right across the hall. Uh, over there. Though it's kind of cold, we might move it to a warmer spot. Uh, and and this is a, a really simple thing, right? It's like 45 minutes to an hour that we just sit around a table as brothers and sisters, and we read scripture, and then we sit quietly, and we pray in response to what we read. And as simple as that is, this is actually like a... Uh, A Swiss army knife of using practices of Jesus, putting them to work, embodying prayer that we're talking about here. Uh, It obviously incorporates prayer. It incorporates prayer and community. How many of the psalms we've looked at always talk about the people of God or going to the temple with the people of God. Prayer is something that we do with other disciples. Uh, It it also incorporates silence. One of the things I love is such a blessing to me as a pastor on Sunday mornings is just to sit with my brothers and sisters and have just times of quiet. And stillness before the gathering starts and we see Jesus doing that all the time of being of being silent of being still uh, before his father and so and that th- we've seen that in the Psalms wait on God be still before God and so just wanted to in- invite you guys a lot of you already come but if you would like to kind of try it out uh, some practices of Jesus three or four of them are found right across the hall on Sunday mornings at 9 30. Today, we're talking about how to pray our doubt. A little, bit, a little bit of an intro about doubt. I think this is one of the, the emotions that we are probably, that I know I struggle with the most to name, or is the least clear to me. Um, it's, it's less obvious, it can be kind of connected or closely associated with other emotions. And so my hope today is that we would just be curious about doubt. We would just be curious about where we have doubts. How do my doubts show up? What are things I do to avoid my doubts? Just be curious and see what God, God might show us, because I feel like this is, a, this is kind of a, a trickier emotion. Praise God, this psalm, though, is unbelievably helpful. And I would say, again, if you have church background, this might be the emotion that's most likely to be repressed, uh, the, the one that you feel the least okay to share in a Christian or church, church circle. Um, because in some, some cases, Lord willing, not yours, faith can kind of be put on you. Like, you need more faith. You need to get some faith. Uh, and and that's, that's a really hard way to live. And so admitting doubts feels like you're just inviting people to punch you in the face and tell you to get, to get more faith. And, you know, it can lead to guilt and shame and depression. And I'm um, so thankful for our, uh, our psalm today, the sermon text, Psalm 73, because it's just unbelievably helpful and honest and clear. I got uh, three C's for you. Always excited when my points start with the same letter. I think the Spirit works better that way. Uh, but I have the, the condition of doubt, and I ha- have the cause of doubt, and the cure of doubt. Condition is just really a description. What is it? We'll look at what causes it, and then the good news of how, how to cure it. Starting in verse 1 and 2, we see, we see the condition laid out for us. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So the first thing we see about doubt is that the issue, as far as I have studied, the issue with doubt is God's goodness. Doubt, as far as I can tell, is a singular issue problem, and it's whether or not God is good. If you flip the page over to the last verse of this psalm that Natalie read for us, verse 28, and if you are following along the few Bibles, this is on page 909, 9010, 911. But as for me, it is good to be near God. Do you see the sandwich, the goodness of God sandwich? It starts out with him saying, Surely God is good to Israel knows your impure are in pure heart. And then he concludes, But for me, it is good to be near God. And I find that, that focus so helpful when we're having dark nights of the soul when we feel that doubt is to just dial in on to, how do I think or feel about God's goodness right now? What in my life is influencing how I think or feel about God's goodness? So That's the first thing we see about the condition of doubt. The, the second thing is a description of what it feels like in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So the psalmist describes doubt as as slipping off a mountain, being on an icy slope and losing your foothold, or like vertigo, where you the 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 breakdown between what your eyes are seeing and your equilibrium is off, and so you you misstep, or like if you spin around in a room. I do that with my son John a lot, and it's fun to we sit down and we kind of stagger and, and and wobble. That's what. That's what the psalmist describes doubt as. It's kind of a spiritual form of, of, of dizziness or slipping. I experienced this where uh, one of my first, actually, it was my first job at a church I actually got fired from. It's a long story, uh, not one I like to tell. Uh, but I was hurt and embarrassing, and it felt like I was slipping. Like it wasn't just obviously the pain of losing. Losing the job, but it felt like my entire like paradigm, like my my entire like foothold and life was gone because they were my friends, and I thought it was like you know twenty four year old Josh getting wake up call. Not everybody likes you. It was very very clueless, <laughs> um, and so right in front of me, I was I was slipping, and I I had my I had myself asking crazy questions about just jumping ship on the whole Christianity thing or. Just trying to write the all-American novel and become a bartender or something like that, and uh, thankfully God saved me from that. Was that that kind of thing where something happens and you just feel like you can't even get like you like you're in like an oil slick, like you try to get up and you just fall back down? Does that ring true to you? Is that similar to any of your experiences? Have you been to places spiritually? Maybe even right now that just feel like an icy mountainside where you can't really get a good grip and maybe it's big events that might just kind of knock your feet out from under you like getting fired or getting sick maybe it's just weariness being burnt out where you just don't have anything left to give uh, just a numbness in your heart that kind of builds over time Maybe this might be a helpful diagnostic tool if you're like, well, yeah, I've felt like that. I felt spiritually dizzy for a long time, but I haven't considered doubt. Maybe when you feel that way, when you feel like these things that you thought you were true, things that you thought you could stand on might not be true, consider, consider doubt, consider the goodness of God. Do you ever feel like jumping ship on Jesus? Just kind of hit the eject button on life and, and check out. And I want us just to pause and embrace for a minute that the Bible, God's word, gives space for doubt. The sweetest thing about my time studying this week was how tender God is towards our doubt, towards our doubting hearts. He's not surprised by our doubts. He's not mad or disappointed in us. He wants us to come to him. Are there doubts that you felt too guilty to, to vocalize? or share it with God? Have you, have you told him just getting down to the root of the matter? God, I just don't really think you're good. Ever since this thing happened, I just can't believe that you're good. That's the condition. Let's look at the cause. Starting in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. Why? For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So the cause of doubt, kind of conceptually, is when our eyes, our, our experience, is different from what we know to be true. Where there's a breakdown between our eyes and our minds, our eyes and our belief. What we're seeing, what we're experiencing, seems, seems wrong. And so in this case, it was injustice. He saw the wicked doing well. That helps us understand what he says in verse 1, where he says, Surely God is good to the pure in heart. He's like trying to preach to himself. Like, surely those who are pure in heart receive God's goodness. But I'm slipping, or I almost slipped, because I saw wicked people prospering, doing well. It didn't compute. What he saw, what he witnessed, didn't compute. He believes God's good, but... something that he sees or experience look at verses 12 and 14 we skipped a few verses but he kind of goes on a little bit of a rant he, he kind of like exaggerates and goes over the top describing how he views the wicked in his state of doubt but let me just read a couple verses this is what the wicked are like this is in verse 12 always carefree they increase in wealth Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been plagued, I have been punished every morning. Do you see this dizziness? Surely God's good to those who follow him, who are pure in heart, who seek to live according to his way. But then he sees this injustice. He sees the the carefree, happy-go-lucky lives of the wicked. So what, what I'm saying, and this is super important, there's so much freedom in this, is that doubt is not an intellectual issue. Doubt is not an intellectual issue fought in the brain, fought in the head, because it's an issue of experience. It's seeing or experiencing something that, that creates dissonance between what we believe The answer to the doubt is not more facts, though those can be helpful. Because at the end of the day, it's what we're seeing. C.S. Lewis tells a story in Mere Christianity about uh, a lady, a single woman, getting asked out by a man. And 20 of her friends tell her, don't, don't do it. He's a terrible guy. Don't do it. He's super sneaky and manipulative. He'll woo you like the best wooer out there, and then as soon as you fall for him, he'll drop you and and go to woo someone else. Twenty of her friends are saying that, but she's single, and she longs to be married, and this guy is good-looking and super kind and has a job, hey. (laughs) And so she goes on the date, and he's doing his wooing thing, and so... The, the breakdown is what she knows. 20 of her friends, who she knows and loves and trusts, she has their audio in their head saying, don't do it. This is not good. This is what he does. But the video is so good looking right in front of her. He's so nice. This is the, the, what we know to be true breaks down from what we are actually seeing. Just like the, the psalmist, if you're writing a psalm, presumably you know a lot about God or the Bible. He knows that surely God is good to those who are pure in heart, but the wicked look like they're having so much fun. Like, they don't have to deal with any of this junk that I have to deal with. The same with suffering in theory versus suffering in experience. Before we maybe really experience suffering, we might know that, yes, suffering is painful, we don't seek it out, but we know that God redeems it. We know that I'm a little bit smaller and I'm a little bit less smart than God. So when I see something I don't understand, he's probably got it. I know scripture tells me that he does. So I can't understand all the details. I don't know the scope of generations upon generations of all the nuances of being human. But I'm going to trust him with that suffering. And then suffering comes to you. And all of a sudden it's like, how could God be good with this? So even though we, we know that God redeems suffering, we know that we're supposed to consider it all joy when we face trials of every kind. But then the pain hits us. Our, our eyes are filled with, the, with our pain and our suffering and we can't, we can't see. 2 Corinthians 5.7 says, For we walk by faith, not by sight. And I think it's really important to note that it says we walk by faith and not by sight. And it does not say we walk by faith and not by reason. For example, in suffering, it's reasonable to assume that there's parts of life in the human experience that we don't understand. That God might have something beyond our ability to comprehend. That's that's not an illogical conclusion to, to come to. But in pain, we get to that but. Yes, that makes sense logically, but this hurts so bad. The cause of doubt is when there's a breakdown between what we see and what we believe, what we know to be true. That brings us to the cure of doubt. Look at verse 16. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. This is this is the Bible saying, stop thinking about it. The, the psalmist is trying to figure out his doubt by thinking about it. He's trying to go deeper and understand it more and more and more. And what does he say? What's the result of that? He's like, I'm in doubt, I feel this dark cloud, this valley of the shadow of death, and so I'm going to withdraw and go try to figure it out. Because listen, thinking didn't get you into doubt. You might think it did, but it did not. It's what we see. It's what we experience. A a campus minister that I know, he says it happens very frequently around the second semester with freshmen. Maybe people he was walking with, or he gets to know kids who went to college, they'd grown up in a Christian home, had Christian values and whatever, and then they start getting lots of doubts right around the second semester. And this guy, I don't necessarily advise you guys doing this, I wouldn't do it, but he said, how long have you been sleeping with your girlfriend? He just like immediately jumps there. He like totally like bypasses all like the intellectual doubt and like what what are you experiencing? Because you might start doing that for the first time and be like this is pretty amazing what kind of god would want to keep this from me and then the doubts kind of go from there what a person needs in doubt is not more thoughts doesn't need to withdraw and think it through and figure it out again thinking didn't get you into doubts and it won't get us out of doubts withdrawing to it is weary and oppressive the bible says So what do we do then? Look at verse 17. Let me read 16 again. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Do you see that? He quits thinking and he enters in. He engages with worship. He goes to church. I realize as a pastor, you can blow that off. All pastors want you to come to church. But I want you to see the essence of what he's doing. When I thought, I was oppressed. When I engaged, I finally understood. I, I finally saw the light through the tunnel. I saw, I saw reality again. Look at verse 18. This is the, the final destiny of the destiny of the wicked. Surely you place them on slippery, slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. When he was trying to figure out, when his eyes were filled with this this injustice of evil people prospering, he was oppressed. And then when he joins with the people of God in God's house and and the temple, he he was brought back to reality, to what he knew to be true. Do you see how he flips it on his head? He's like, I had almost slipped but I went to church, and now I see that it's actually they who slip. It might look good for a moment, but how slippery is it to chase money or sex or anything? How slippery is that? We see that he engages with community, with, with other saints with the same beliefs. In our Lone Ranger kind of culture, we think we should like have all the beliefs by ourselves all the time. That's not an expectation on any Christian anywhere in Scripture. Instead, our, our beliefs are affirmed and deepened by being with God's people. What is the temple of God now? We looked at that in our church series this past summer. It's the people of God. God's spirit dwells with us. It's just a mind-blowing reality of this little gathering we have here, these red chairs with horse trough. But well, The spirit of God is with us, this Is where with the saints. And I'm not sure how to incorporate this into our worship gatherings, but when he says go to temple, uh, it was a lot more involved for him. It wasn't just kind of show up and, and get some coffee and chill, but everybody lined up outside, the band started playing, everybody singing and cheering, and they parade into the sanctuary all together, reading, singing, engaging with the body, parading So we see that it's not just coming to get more facts, because again, more facts don't help us, but it's actually engaging with the church, engaging with the body, which is why we stand and we sit and we have readings that everybody does. That's why we sing with our bodies. So the first cure we see is to engage. Enter the temple, if we want to use the direct uh, language. We enter the sanctuary of God as one of the ways that we engage with our doubts. Doesn't mean you have to like it. Doesn't mean you have to want to do it. If you say, I don't like these doubts, then let's just try what scripture says and enter the sanctuary. Be around God uh, through his people. It's one of the beautiful ways that we support each other and love each other and bear each other's burdens is when when we're feeling dry and alone and far from God, we can be with other people who have the Spirit in them who who can be strong for us. And if we're thinking about modifying our our perception if, if what is wrong is our life experience is causing these doubts then do you think that it, you know an hour and 15 minutes on Sundays is enough to kind of reframe that whole thing that's one of the beautiful things that we see about Jesus and his way of discipleship or apprenticeship is that it's an all of life thing it's an all day every day it's getting the gospel into the everyday parts of life it's being the, the body of Christ throughout the week if we are just watching super scary news hours a day and seeing whatever is on our social media and then working in an environment that might be about something else ultimately, which isn't bad, like it's not bad for businesses to be about money or whatever, but like might that kind of override like an hour on Sunday morning? What would it look like to have, to enter the sanctuary throughout, throughout the week? It's like a long distance relationship, if you will. I had the unfortunate experience of being in several long distance relationships and uh, I decided that they were the, they were the, if you're if you're in one, there's hope it can happen. I'm just like not I wasn't able to do it um, because it would get to the point where like okay do we want to see if this is it like do we want to see if we only get married like at some point we got to be together. But there was like no way to develop enough trust to where someone would like, actually make that move because we're just like texting and like trying to like get you know get st- there's no way to build enough trust to like uproot our lives and like buy into this thing, and then of course like relationships where we had, like met long distance and tried everything long had never really done life together. Like how how much can you can you put your heart out there for someone that you you know don't don't see a lot. How, how willing are you to, like, buy in to God's reality if it's just kind of a long-distance relationship? The second thing, first thing, enter, enter the sanctuary. second thing is feel for the hand. Look at verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, meaning, like, when I was in doubt, Verse 22, he says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. The powerful thing we see here is that this guy took his ugly, took his like bitter, snarly, animal-like doubt, where? Before God. He lets the ugly show. This shows us, one, that doubts make us reactionary animals. If you're in a place of doubt, consider your reactions that they might not be like the most foundationally true thing. Not in a sense of guilt, but just to be be aware of what doubt does to us. And then notice the beauty, the grace of this is that we can we can be senseless and ignorant like a brute beast before the God of the universe. Why? Because we're dressed in Christ's righteousness. And we can receive grace. That's what he says next. I was a brute beast before you verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. How do we get out of doubt? We reach for the hand. We take our ugly, we take our senselessness, we take our anger, our rants. The the 15 verses of ranting that he did before we got to this point. I was a brute beast before you, and yet I'm with you. You hold me by your right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Look at verse 25, 26. These are some of the most beautiful words in all of scripture. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Reaching for the hand means we actually show up to God relationally, like we give space to like be with God and have those doubts with Him. And it says that He's with us and He upholds us. He holds us by our right hand. And you'll notice that the psalmist doesn't say, "And now I'm, I have no doubts. Now I, my feet are on solid ground and nothing will ever happen." No, he says, "What does he say in verse twenty-six? My flesh and my heart will fail, may fail." He's like, yeah, I got out of that season of doubt. There'll probably be another one. My heart and flesh will probably fail me again. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. It's God who is our, is our strength. God is our hope in the face of doubts. So coming to him, reaching for his hand. Verse 28 says, but as for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the psalmist saying, I believe, help my unbelief. It's not the power of my belief, but it's the power of who I believe in that helps me in time of doubt. What we see here in this reaching for the hand is that doubt is a unique opportunity to receive grace from our Father. It's a unique opportunity to let God be strong for us. to receive the grace of being a beast, be senseless and ignorant before God. Pre-reflective emotions, pre-reflective thoughts on how wrong things are, and then let him hold you, take you by your right hand. When we pray our doubts, we get off our high horse of trying to figure everything out for ourselves and we engage with God through his people. So maybe that means making Sunday morning a commitment or a CG uh, if you haven't tried one of those, a connecting group that meets throughout the week. Or maybe just getting a couple brothers and sisters together to meet each week and to pray and read scripture. Like we need a tribe, y'all. It's not just the, the handshake on Sunday mornings, though this worship gathering is meant to be formative. We need someone, people who know us deeply. So we enter the sanctuary and then we get alone and slow down. To reach, reach for his hand requires space and time for our doubts to kind of bubble to the surface that actually have time to wait and listen, listen on God. To close, I want us to look at how Jesus responds to doubts. Fullness of God was pleased to dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. Look how Jesus responds to doubts. John 20, which is page 1687. Jesus has just risen from the dead. Hallelujah. A few of uh, the disciples had seen Jesus in his resurrected form. Now look what it says. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas is spinning. He's slipped. He's already fallen. Why? Because he just spent three years seeing Jesus do these incredible miracles, even raise multiple people from the dead, and then he sees him killed. You see the, the breakdown and what he knew to be true, and then the experience of seeing Jesus crucified. He's a flailing animal. His closest friends are like, we've seen him. He's risen. And he's like, nah. i got to see the nail holes. I need to see his side. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them through the doors. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he turned to, Psalm, to Thomas and said, How dare you doubt me, you ungrateful fool. No, that's not what he says. Then he to Sa- Sa- he, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. What is well, the heart of Christ towards our doubts? Touch, see, experience my love. These holes that are here for you, this hole in my side that's here for you. He invites us to reach out our hands and, and see whether or not God is good in the person, the crucified and resurrected Savior. Jesus. He extends his hands to us so we can reach for his hand in our doubts. The hand by, that he grabs our right hand with, as the psalmist says, has, has nail holes in it, securing for all time that God is good. God's goodness is not abstract, rooted in the fact of nail wounds, of, of a pierced, broken Savior who's now resurrected. And reaches out towards us. Our hope is that he is not dead, but he is alive. Let me pray.